This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Tracy Morgan, and I am your host at New Books in Psychoanalysis. And today we're delighted to have with us uh, Fakhri Davids. Um, who will be discussing uh, his book, published in 2011 by Red Globe Press, I believe, um, Internal Racism, A Psychoanalytic Approach to Race and Difference. Uh, welcome, uh, Fakhri, to this show, and um, we're delighted to have you here. So. Thank you very much, Tracy. It's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you for selecting the book to talk about. Sure. Um, I, uh, you know, I was just recalling that I read the book maybe about a year ago, um, and I've taught it now once, and I'm about to teach aspects of it um, again. So for me, um, it's an amazing uh, experience to be able to speak to you while I am uh, working through the material and working through the material with psychoanalytic candidates. Um, so um, I want to give um, uh, Fakhri's um, bio and a little um, information about him. Um, he's at, let's see, so you're in Britain. So MSC is new to me. That means you're a clinical psychologist. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, great. And um, so, so Fakhri David is a clinical psychologist and a psychoanalyst in full-time clinical practice. Um, he is a fellow and training analyst uh, of the British Psychoanalytic Society a member of the Tavistock Society of Psychotherapists, a board member of PCCA Partners in Confronting Collective Atrocities, a member of the IPA Liaison Committee for, for SAPA, South African Psychoanalytic Association, and a member of APSA's Holmes Commission for Racial Equality in Psychoanalysis. He holds honorary appointments in the Tavistock Clinic, the Psychoanalysis Unit, University College London, and the Department of Psychosocial and Psychoanalytic Studies, Essex University. Um, and he is, um, as, as further mentioned, previously mentioned, the author of Internal Racism, Psychoanalytic Approach to Race and Difference. And I said it was Red, Glo- Red uh, Globe, but it's actually Palgrave Macmillan. It was a little confusing for me who, who the publisher was as I um, read inside. But so let's, let's get started. Um, what we tend to do at New Books in Psychoanalysis, Fakhri, is we ask every author um, uh, to the degree that you can tell us um, your motivations uh, or that you can know your motivations for what you do. What motivated you to, um, to write this book? It goes back a long way, Tracy. I grew up in apartheid South Africa, 
which is where I did my clinical psychology training. And during my postgraduate psychology studies, I discovered Franz Fanon's work, Black Skin, White Masks, which was the most extraordinary discovery. You, you'll know that Fanon speaks in a way that hits you in the solar plexus. And he opened my eyes to what was going on inside of my head in relation to racism, the experience of racism, in a way that was just utterly mind-blowing. And of course, in that book, Fanon also makes the case that psychoanalysis needs to account for this in some sort of meaningful way. And you'll, if you've read it, the red uh, black skin, white masks, you'll remember Fanon went almost apoplectic on discovering the way Manoni approached the problem of colonial interracial relationships. So to put that another way, psychoanalysis at that time couldn't offer anything that actually helped us to understand what goes on inside the mind, you know, that would account for some of the stuff that Fanon articulates so beautifully. You know, some of the agony, some of the pain, some of the splits inside the mind that are instituted and which you struggle, you know, endlessly, it seems, to try and overcome so that you can become something that resembles a whole person without bits of your experience chronically sort of split off and left outside. So that for me, you know, became an, you know, a bit of a mission. I wanted to see, you know, is it possible to bring that into one's sense of who one is as a person? So to, to, to put that in a nutshell, psychoanalysis knows a hell of a lot about how we we're helped to become ourselves, but mostly that excludes considering our experience of racism. So I was always interested to see, is it possible to find a way to incorporate that? And have we, psychoanalysts as a discipline, made any progress in our approach to these phenomena from the time of Manoni? So that's what brought me. And of course, you can't do the work before becoming a psychoanalyst yourself. So that takes decades. But this this book sort of represents an attempt, you know, to go back to that business and to see what could be done. Now, of course, important because Franz Fanon didn't do the analytic training and he wasn't a psychoanalyst, although often he's thought of as one. Um, so I was curious to see if one went through the rigors of this and became an insider in this discipline, was there any way what could return meaningfully to the problem? So one of the most exciting um, uh, sort of impacts of the book is it's so rare. Uh, you know, I read all the time and do interviews and I'm sort of surveying the field. Uh, uh, the, the written fields of psychoanalysis. And it really is rare to find a new idea. And um, when I find one, I really want to do the interview <laughs> with, the, with the author. And I certainly think your book puts forth 
not just a new idea, but an entirely uh, different, in some ways, model of the mind, of, of psychic structure. And I want to ask you to, because I think it's so groundbreaking and has such incredible implications, this idea of uh, the internal racist organization. Uh, I have it written down, the IRO, and all my notes about the book, IRO, the IRO. You know, it's thinking about the internal racist organization as forming, I think you say somewhere, a kind of almost, you use the term bedrock. Now, we know when you say bedrock in psychoanalysis, you're shaking the bedrock. Because what Freud put as the bedrock, right, was sexual difference, femininity. Um, so I want you, I, I'm assuming that you have, you know, you're steeped in a, in a certain kind of Kleinian, neo-Kleinian um, milieu. And you've, you're coming from there and you are adding and augmenting and expanding uh, that view of the inner, uh, the inner world. How does this, this is a huge question, but I mean, how does the internal racist organization come into being? Uh, maybe we can start there, because uh, I think the audience really was going to be fascinated by how you think. I'll answer that in two different ways, Tracy. Firstly, that it's a new idea. You know, I, I mean, yes, nobody's put this quite in this way. But it's not a brand new idea at all. Um, as you say, you know, it's just if you remember what I say about my sort of um, underlying interest, you know, in addition to learning the craft, the business of becoming a psychoanalyst, I had this unanswered question that I brought into it. So that in a way, I think there are many Kleinian analysts today who operate with a the uh, frame within this framework that I operate in, who think in this way, and for whom what I say about defensive organizations is absolutely nothing new. Um, my contribution has been that I brought this unanswered question into this milieu, and then I've had to angle it in, if you see what I mean, to, to see can this work. So the idea... Um, of an organized system of defenses in the mind is absolutely not new. You know, I came here as a trainee, and at that time, um, we were sort of trying to treat um, the sort of borderline narcissistic type patient, the patient that's not amenable easily to treat treatment, you know, and the idea that one had to think not of, as a defense, a, that a set of defenses that the patient has against particular anxieties, but that the patient lived in their heads with an organized set of defenses to which they pledged Like Rosenfeld's gang leader. That's, that's Rosenfeld, basically, right. and John Steiner's concept yeah. of the yeah, psychic yeah. retreat. All of that's where this mm -hmm. is from. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the mm -hmm. theoretical foundations had been laid. What I brought into it is simply the observation that the kinds of things we encounter in the consulting room when we have such difficult patients is not different from when we 
all normal, all of us, enter the terrain of intercultural, interracial engagement. We, we, we seem to freeze. We can't be our ordinary selves. And that then opens up the, and, and very often we become politically correct, even though we are not racist in ourselves. So that's an interesting observation. And if you then take that further, then you'll think, okay, if I'm acting in a politically correct way, there must be some unconscious way in which something racist is going on inside my head. So it's observations like that, if you, which if you put it together, make you think, okay, so we're in the presence then of a defensive organization, an organized system of defenses operating unconsciously that's sort of taken hold of us at a particular time. Yeah, and that, that produces the paralysis. So then you've got the idea that there must be, even though we're not very disturbed patients, there must be something like a psychic retreat that has come into being. It's come into play at that moment. And that's the sort of thing that I thought, all right, that's a good beginning. Now, to understand how it works, I'm going to have to wait until I encounter one of these things in the consulting room, and then I'd be able to study this a bit further. So, you know, it's as most things in psychoanalysis, you've got to wait a long time, you know, for the right, because you can't, you can't, you know, it's not an experiment you can set up and, and yeah, analysis just doesn't work like that. Anyway, so eventually something came along that I thought, right, there, I, there I've got the sort of phenomenon that I think is in play, and that's what I describe in the book. So my first response is it's not new. Um, it's not a new formulation of mine. It's the application of the formulation regarding defensive organizations to racist phenomena per se. That's my contribution to spell that out. Now, if I can say one more thing. I think you're too um, modest, but hmm? yes. If I can say one more thing. I said, I think no. you're, you're, yeah. You're, you're quite, mo- no. you're, you're being quite modest. No, it's the scaffolding that one builds on. You see that if fun on sure. were alive, you would seize on it. I think anyway, I may be wrong, but and I don't mean to underestimate the amount of work, thinking through, looking at theory and so on, that one has to do. I'm not shortchanging that. So what did I do? I then looked at the formulations of defensive or pathological organizations and realized that that is associated with psychopathology. So if you and I deploy something like that, it must mean that something like that exists in our minds. Now, once one concedes that, then you've got to give a developmental account of it. So for the pathological organization, it's usually something's gone wrong in the course of development, either environmental failure or the patient starts off with a psychotic predisposition but they are not frankly psychotic. They've got enough ego 
to organize this kind of defense to hold themselves together. That's in the case of pathology. In the case of normality, I had to really do some hard work and try and give an account of how one finished up with this thing in the mind. And that's what you're talking about, the, the original work that had to be done. So shall I say a little bit about that? Again, I rely very much on the Kleinian model of development, you know. And um, I say that for Klein, it is perfectly normal that all of us start in the paranoid schizoid position. That means that our earliest relationships, what we would call good, is not the whole story. It's based on splitting off bits that are bad. So we create two separate objects. And the, so our beginning is in a paranoid schizoid way, that we live in a world of friends and enemies. Um, and we try to consolidate what lies on the good side with the friends and try and keep our enemies at bay. Now, there's the key moment that, uh, it's not a moment, of course, but theoretically a moment that Klein, Klein describes as the move to the depressive position, which is essentially where one has matured a bit. One knows a bit about the way things are in reality and that it's not so cleaved between good and bad, and that some process of integration takes place. Now, that is the normal, usual Kleinian story, and then one goes on and on, and you know, you're ready to do whatever it is that you have to do. Now, I looked at that and saw that the work on stranger anxiety had not been integrated into that model. So that what happens with strange anxiety is that you encounter the original split between good and bad, but now no longer between one figure and another, but between the familiar. They are all assimilated to the schema of the good and the familiar and the known and the loved, but the stranger is treated as if he were a complete monster who's going to do terrible things to you. So that strange anxiety sets in at about eight months. And then by about 12 months, the infant has done what it did in the depressive position. It's made a kind of peace. It's begun to realize that in reality, you know, the world doesn't cleave into strangers and friends and all good and all bad on either side of that divide. So that's, I, so, so that's the second thing. And then I thought, now, once that, that is detoxified, you can think of it, once it's sorted out and you've you kind of got yourself in line with reality, is that the end of it? And if you look at developmental research, you find that that's not the end of it. There's another incarnation of it that is less visible to us ordinarily. And that's the stuff that Clark and Clark drew attention to first with their doll studies. And, I mean, most people will know them and because they, they're such upsetting, such upsetting findings. Honestly, they, they bring tears to your eyes, you know, and it makes one feel, how could we do this to our children? But essentially, what Clark and Clark showed is that 
your group identity. That is, if you take, they, they looked at black and white kids in the South, in the American South to begin with. If you look at group identity at the earliest stages they measure it, about three, four, you find that black and white children identify in line with prevailing anti-black stereotypes. In other words, white kids have positive notions towards a white doll and negative ones towards blacks. Now that everybody expects. They're young, they haven't yet kind of, you know, got to know how people really are. But the surprising thing was so did black kids. In other words, they identified against their blackness and with whiteness. And often if you watch, you can watch these studies on on YouTube, you know, you see they make those choices with truth. Almost you can see how tortured they are, as if as if their their voices are betraying them, you know, as that sort of thing. So I think that what you see there, and those studies, incidentally, as you probably know, have been replicated across the world. Um, and of course, we have to remember our world today is very much a post-colonial world where the division between white and power and dark-skinned and disempowered very much permeates our world. That's very, very powerful, you could say, socio-ideological force that operates out there. But if you look at it like that, that what operates out there somehow finds its way into the mind. And I think there you see the internalization of the external divide, and you see that it is beginning to be put into a defensive organization. So the the model of development that I propose is that its, its trajectory is from the normal splitting through strange anxiety, and its final resting place is, as I've said, in your identification with the dominant power group. That's what I think. So I think internal racism is about internalizing that set of power relationships. Now, I was going to make another point about that, but that's gone from me. I'll come back to it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. (laughs) Poppy's already had a long day with patience um, because he's in England and uh, we're here. uh, I'm here in New York and it's uh, just, just around lunchtime, so... Um, we, we give him a lot of latitude um, after a full day, a full day of listening. Um, I, I wanted, I think you make a point, and maybe I misunderstand it, and you could help me out here, uh, about the relationship between the waning of the Oedipal and the development of the internal racist organization. A- am I correct that you're saying there is a relationship? 
there? Uh, or or did I mis- have I misread something? Um, I I think you know I've looked at that because as you probably know, ma- many people psychoanalysts think that the race distinction, black white, call it or whatever your dom your the one in your world. What many people think that that is simply from a dynamic point of view, it's a variant of the gender one. In other words, I mean, a friend of mine in South Africa, Sally Swartz, has written a very lovely paper on that, where she thinks race class can't be separated out from gender, that they're all internalized together in the Oedipal, in an Oedipal moment. Now, I disagree with that. I don't think that it's it's got the quality. If that were the case, then the dynamic between black and white, the interracial dynamic, would be the same as the Oedipal dynamic in the here and now. And I don't think it is. I go with the original Freudian conception of that the Oedipus complex is the moment of tolerating and resolving in the mind neurotic conflict. And I think there's a lot of evidence that when you get onto the terrain of race, racial difference, you step onto a different terrain. That is not one in which conflict is tolerated. In other words, in the Oedipal, typically you face the defense of repression, where one bit of the conflict is kept unconscious whilst another dominates. But because the repressing, the force of keeping it out is a repressing force, it lifts more easily. Whereas when you talk about racist interchange, you are in the area of things being split off, and today, not repressed, but split off. In other words, they are felt not to be in the mind, my mind, in other words, um, but usually they are in somebody else's mind. So we're talking the language of splitting and projective identification. And those are not the cl- part of the classical theoretical conception of the Oedipus. You know, now many people change Oedipus into something that accommodates that. But I don't think like that. I think it's not conceptually useful to muddy the waters like that. So therefore, I think that this thing, an internal racist structure, I'll say a bit more about that in a minute, um, is, is in place probably just before the Oedipal dynamics begin to come to the surface. And present themselves as a sort of psychic struggle. So, because because it's uh, if we were to think sort of developmentally that it's earlier, more primitive, more chaotic. Like in moments when you know there there are discussions in groups at institutes, etc., around racism, you really get to see um, uh, you witness it, particularly amongst uh, white uh, analysts, thinkers, speakers, uh, myself included. A, Kind of a, um, a, a 
my capacity to think disintegrate and goes someplace yeah. where I like a psychose blanche, like you know the the greens idea of like a like a, a white psychosis. I was like because you because you can feel when that when that happens and you're talking and you know that you're not communicating anymore. You're using words, but there's um, uh, and and people say some of the strangest almost like non sequiturs and things begin to not quite word salad, but things begin to stop making sense. You know, that you feel that more primitive yes. forms of communication. Yeah. It's those sorts of observations that make one think that that's not classically Oedipal struggle. You know, that's something more primitive, more powerful, you know, and then if you put it in that framework of the more primitive and more powerful, then you can begin to make some sort of progress. You can begin to understand, you know. Well, I, but I of, think. Go ahead. But you know, a key thing though is this: that I think the internal racist structure is like, you know, we you were mentioning Rosenfeld's work earlier. It's like an enclave, but it's an enclave in a normal mind, whereas what we discuss encounter in psychopathology is it's an enclave within a much more troubled mind so that there's very little ego strength and the patient is sort of powerless against the pull of these forces whereas for us it's only when we stray into that terrain that we are like you described we become persecuted, we lose our, you know, all those psychotic things fall apart. You know, ego functioning, in other words, is totally impaired. As though we've, we've walked out of the room where the ego is into a side room, you know, where we really are quite crazy. Now, that's very, very important. Where there, it has no floor in that room. That sort of thing. That's a room that doesn't yeah. have any floor. It doesn't have any windows. It doesn't have any fresh air. Exactly. It's, a, it's a crazy room. Yeah. But part of, part of what I think is very compelling, and I, uh, in teaching the book um, in the fall, I found quite liberating um, for, the, for the students and for myself, is if you begin to think about this as the internal racist organization as a normal part of the mind, um, just like a, you know, if you're a drive theorist, you accept that the, you know, that there's pleasure and destruction, and we work through our life to not be too destructive. That's the life's work, and it's expectable that one, you know, one has that impulse. And in the same way, there's kind of a, a fascinating. Um, I use this word normalization. It doesn't quite get to it, but there's something that that you can expect to find this in the mind, and I found that the students began to work, it was a racially mixed class, with um, the, the white students with guilt and shame, they were able to hold themselves together more with this idea and to speak more uh, without all the splitting, without the kind of, you know, blinding, uh, you know, shame. Um, there was something about, you could expect to find this in the mind. Or as you say in the book, I think uh, all of us, uh, you don't say you scratch a little beneath the surface, but all of us can find our inner bigot. That's not so difficult to do. Um, and I think that this is a this is a really significant Indeed. contribution. 
yeah. Yeah. I think you don't I want to see us get you, stuck you know, in this. I think that's very important. Yeah. You know, we're not proud of our bigotry. That's absolutely so. But equally, you know, when you think about it, bigotry is bigotry. You know, it's not killing people. You know, it's not. But but part of the problem, if you think of it as a defensive organization, a thing that has a life of its own, that thing makes you feel that you've done the worst possible thing to another human being. You know, that's part of the psychotic sort of superego persecuting you. It's going to tear you limb from limb. And the cure for it is what you say in your students. If they can bring the normal ego to bear, if they can think about it, if they can feel, look, I wish the floor would, you know, open up and swallow me. If they can know those those sorts of feelings, of course, that's bringing insight. And that's the very thing that is actually the antidote to it. You know, because that way, in our language, you develop an awareness of not only your shame, but what those thoughts are in your mind that bring the shame, you know. And that is ordinary analysis. It's having insight into, into you know, what one's unconscious does without consulting us, usually. You know, it's got a life of its own. <laughs> I, I want well, you talked in, in the book you write about. So. No, there's just, I wanted to make one more point about the thing I forgot earlier. You know, about the, 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 the third incarnation in internal racism of this primitive split object relationship. What's important about it is that it's usually in alignment with societal stereotypes. And that is absolutely key because the thing that persuades you from remaining trapped in paranoid schizoid functioning is reality testing. The same with a stranger, you realize at some point that not all strangers are ogres. It's reality testing that helps you. But once you hit on this solution in which the societal bad object is the person, the member of the outgroup, who by definition you will not encounter, then you can see it's a system that has free reign. You know, it, 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 okay. and then it grows and develops and it uses selective observation about the other to confirm its stereotypes internally so that there's a huge pressure to keep the split going, you know. So, for example, in South Africa, sometimes when on the odd occasion that you could talk to somebody who was of the ruling class, you know, they would have a very decent conversation with you and spontaneously say, you know, apartheid is not about people like you. You know, you obviously share a lot. We can talk. And then, of course, we, we would, I would think, yeah, but it's not about that. If apartheid, what I experience, is applied to some poor backward villager somewhere, it is still as wrong 
as you know when it's applied to me so but there you see beautifully that a, a racist system in the mind is challenged by the reality of experience of talking to a darker skinned man and having a decent time together you know a pleasant intercourse across color lines it shouldn't be and you see the defense that you know this is the exception but we still need that well, you, division you, well can you speak to us about the the idea you have about ordinariness i think this is very fascinating uh in your clinical examples for instance you know where your uh patient um i think it's from chapter 2 uh what takes place in the session you link to his having found you to be uh, too ordinary. And you're describing this interaction between the ruling class in South Africa, you know, speaking, you know, to a black person. And, oh, you know, it's not does not apply to you. There's something, I'm wondering if there's a connection there about your thinking about ordinariness and, um, and the way it can activate, I think, if I'm understanding what you've written, the internal racist organization. When it's in, uh, when it's it is, a, a biracial duo, it's exactly that. That's exactly how I think of it. I think there is something in us that believes that we need to keep some kind of outgroup person at a distance. Yeah, I think we seem to believe that it's necessary for psychic life. So that so the function of it is to keep the distinction going. Now, every time one has an ordinary interaction with somebody who's meant to be in that category, it raises the alarm unconsciously on the part of the system. And I think that is then externalized. So you're absolutely right. I think it's ordinariness, ordinary humanness that gets through this defensive system. So I don't think black people are hated in a white racist society because they're black. They are hated because they are ordinary human, like you and anybody else, me. And it's when that, that comes through that the tension, the need to violently sometimes reinstate the division becomes absolutely urgent. So, for example, when one thinks about this thing on a macro level, and I don't mean to simplify everything to psychology, simply to say there's a psychic element involved in the mix yeah. of stuff. If you think of the tremendous thing that what that people in your country felt and that the whole world felt, when you elected Barack Obama as president. Now, what did you elect? You elected a very smart guy, a young guy, an articulate guy, and you'd had, who was it, Bush before that? or Who came before Obama? Yeah. You know, anyway, you, you, you elected... George. You elected a... Yeah? who happened to be brown-skinned. Yeah, a, a very different guy. George W. was not as educated. I mean, exactly. Obama was a quite different person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was a very yeah. special, compassionate, at ease with himself, 
oozing, not resentments, but, you know, look, we're all in this, you know, and I'm of you and that okay. sort of thing. Now, I think that kind of ordinary He had a lot of depressive positions in him. Uh, yeah. That sort of stuff. But the ordinariness, I think, threatens the racist structure that wants to make of blacks something very different to whites. You know, and I see the backlash as to do to do with that. You know, so I think, for example, in the struggle for equal rights and so on, I think this is the way it's going to go. You know, little victories and then backlashes. And of course, we clinicians know that. That's how, with our very disturbed patients, it goes. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, in a sense, I mean, you suggest that uh, our model of development, um, what is it you say, our picture of maturation through increasing integration is too smooth. Um, in a way, you're sort of like, I, I was reminded of this a title of the Joyce McDougall book, A Plea for a Measure of Abnormality. There's sort of a plea for a measure of, it's, it's, uh, it's, much, it's much messier and we don't ever, um, we, we, it's a life's work working with one's uh, internal racist organization. Is, is that something you would say? Like, it, it seems to me it could be seen as a life work. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. I and think we don't ever get rid of it. One might as well ex- Yeah. Yeah, you might as... But it's a bit like the Oedipus complex, isn't it? It's what Freud said. Mm-hmm. You don't outgrow it. You know, you, right. and if you're lucky, you get to know it a bit better and you get to know its elements and then you are less controlled by particular configurations inside it. And I think the same applies right. to one's racism, one's, you know, that structure um, of self and other. But just again, to make a link, that that idea is very much in line with contemporary Kleinian thinking. You know, you'd find the same idea in people saying, look, we don't ever outgrow the paranoid schizoid position. You know, the depressive position, it's not the wonderful up uplands that we get to and then phew, we've left behind the tortures. And if you think about ordinary life, it's true. You know, I'm sure we all, at some point, when we've had enough, sure. you know, we we're in a different space. But I think the racist structure, maybe in the mind, provides a resting place for some of those those destructive tendencies. That's what I mean. I, I explained it maybe incorrectly to students. I said, you know, when uh, dealing with the anxieties aroused by resolving the Oedipal, there seems, I'm wondering if, and this is a question I asked, but I wonder if um, Bakri Davids is telling us <laughs> that um, we can take some sort of a succor, some sort of a pleasure, a respite in the internal racist organization. I, I don't know if you would see things that way, but that was, one of, that was one read that came to my mind because, of course, resolving the Oedipal is quite stressful, right? I think in terms of pre-Oedipal, I mean, my training is, is not Kleinian, but I think in terms of pre-Oedipal and Oedipal, on that, you know, if, if things get Oedipal, you're lucky. 
you know, <laughs> if you get up to something edible. But these disturbances, uh, you know, around racism are um, uh, certainly are more of a pre-edible order. It, 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 does that make any sense, what I just said? <laughs> I mean, does that seem... No, absolutely. I agree with that. I like think a, like a seesaw. Mm -hmm. And that they are... You see, the, what is... You, it's a good question, you know, why do we have them? Now, I think they are a way of binding destructiveness. You see, so that instead of having to face our raw, primal hatred of anything that doesn't suit us, say, or any object that, you know, does, you know, that gets under our skin and so on. I mean, to live, if you were to live your instincts, you would be intolerable. And I think the burden of destructiveness is bound up in this kind of way. I mean, Freud touched on it where he talked about the narcissism of minor differences, you'll remember, you know, where he says your group identity um, represents a harmless way of institutionalizing your love towards your people in your group and your hatred towards people outside your group. And, I mean, Freud was fond of thinking of the bedrocks. He, he didn't quite develop these ideas, but you could see where he was going. It's the same as what you were saying earlier, where he talks about the gender distinction and what's attached to it and so on. But I, so I do think it's that, that it, inst it institutionalizes it. And I don't think there's any better way of institutionalizing our destructiveness, you know. So I think it's there well, I, to stay. I think, well, I think in the book you say there, there might, you might have a sentence, something about like that the presses um, seem to be less racist. But the uh, aggression, I, I would, that, that depressives, I have a quote somewhere here in my notes about um, people who are depressed and um, that they are uh, less, I don't know, is this you or somebody else? I'm in the middle of teaching this, this class, which is really actually my, the title is a tribute to your work, Racism in the Development of the Psyche. Um, you know, but, but that depressive. Yeah, no, no, it, I mean, it, it it was clear to me I could design a class around the idea that racism is a part of how the psyche developed after I read your book. Things really fell, fell much more into place. Um, but I thought it was someplace in the book where depressives are, um, are, have less, uh, are, are less racist or something. And I thought like, oh, that's interesting. So the, the energy is, um, is, is again, sort of against the self rather than externalized. They're less likely to, I, don't, I think this was you. Maybe not. I'm not, Maybe I'm not. not sure of that, but it may be somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If you look, if you you look there, there are studies on racism among seriously ill patients, psychotic patients, mm -hmm. compared to normals, and there's mm -hmm. less racism about among psychotic patients. I mean, mm -hmm. the, but, but this, I think I've got it in the book somewhere in the reviews, mm -hmm. but that's now a long time ago. I'm, I'm not up on the new 
work. But that's that. I think it's that observation that if your destructiveness is tearing your mind apart, then you don't need this kind of structure in which to contain it. You know, that right. would be the thinking. Right. And well, there is there are findings have... like that. Sure. Um... I mean, it makes sense to me. If the aggression is turned inward rather than outward, potentially um, one way is a, a way that I would I would look at it. Um, you write about institutional racism, and we don't have a heck of a lot of time yet. But you have, uh, you know, here in the states. I mean, the psychoanalytic institute, mine included, the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, is people people are really have been undertaking uh, trying to ask themselves very hard questions. And it's almost like a, a, an explosion of interest, of course, in America since, um, you know, the murder of George Floyd. Um, but you see in psychoanalytic institutes in this country a, an, attempt, um, an attempt to reckon why so few black candidates, for instance. And these conversations, I, I reread again your chapter on um, uh, institutional racism. I have a faculty meeting on Tuesday. Uh, that I'm, I'm kind of dreading, um, I'm, because I'm a part of a committee, Psychoanalysts Against Racism Committee within the Institute. We're pushing for a, a stance of reparations, which you'll understand as reconciliation, uh, truth and reconciliation of that sort of a stance. Um, some in the Institute have said, well, we want diversity. You know the conversation. I don't even have to. We want diversity. And we said, well, no, the stance has to be a stance of reparation um, is, is what will uh, create an, an open and inviting institute, but diversity is not going to um, to to um, to work uh, mm. because who cares mm. about diversity? What about having a reparative stance? Um, and yeah. you know, it's but but you in the book you say it's easier to be a victim of racism than a perpetrator, and I think about this when I think about my institute and many institutes, colleagues of other institutes are having these conversations uh, where things kind of go off the rails and people lose the ability, um, the ability to think. And um, I wondered if you would, what you, you know, I know you wrote this book 11 years ago or 12 years, you know, 10 years ago, but, but when you say it's easier to be a victim of racism than a perpetrator, I know you're talking about something within the total system that you've, you've uh, developed without the mind. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, since, since I wrote that, I have to say I've been very impressed by the way the conversation within our profession has moved on, particularly in your country, you know, where I think people are beginning to think, look, let's not try and fix it for black people. Let us try and look at ourselves. So the conversation has moved on to what does white privilege involve? To what extent, you know, and some of the, that is very moving, and I think that's in the right direction. Because if one doesn't examine that and begin to think ab about that, then it will be there unconsciously as forces that oppose your conscious wish to make your institutions more diverse. So I'm very much in favor of that. That is a proper psychoanalytic way. Let's look at us, ourselves, 
And when people talk about whiteness, and there's much more talk about it, and what have you done, and what are you guilty of, and what aren't you guilty of, and what can you manage, and what can't you manage, I think it's the fact of having those conversations that will mobilize the creativity and within all of us that needs to be brought to creating the sort of societies that we want that are more equitable, you know, and open and so on. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very pleased at the way it's, it's gone. Of course, what I was meaning by that was, I, I'm not sure I should have put it like that, because what I mean is that the psychic work that the so-called object of racism has to do is different from the psychic work than the so-called perpetrator of racism has to do. They're two very different tasks, all under the same umbrella of internal racism. Mm -hmm. You know, and Mm -hmm. you can see if both parties don't do that, then you'll get an enactment that passes as an attempt to solve a problem. You're trying to solve something externally that's internal. And I think our profession is in a unique position to focus internally as well as what must we do. Sure, there are things we must do, but if we don't accompany that by this internal stuff, then I think we will be undermined by them going into the unconscious and, you know, it will destroy our best efforts. I think that um, what you've just said is terrific and it's a good place for us to end because uh, it's such a, a wonderful statement for um, uh, members of the profession uh, as as we're um, trying to to work things through in a in a genuine rather than a um, a psychoanalytic as opposed to let's say a behavior therapy model. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so I wanted to thank you so much um, for being with us. Um, I I want to ask any any current projects, any other writing projects that you have planned, anything that you're up to that you want us to know about. No, I I don't have anything new coming okay. out, but I'm I'm okay. still working through some of this stuff. Tracy, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it, and very lovely <laughs> to talk to you. Very lovely to talk to you too. Okay. Um, so um, this is Tracy Morgan, your host at New Books and Psychoanalysis, signing off. Uh, next up, we will be interviewing in, I don't know, a month or so, Neil Altman on his book on white privilege. So you can tune back in if you want to listen then. And Fakhri, a wonderful evening to you.